Arboria. Yeah, but the podcast, this is Vivian Gabor, and today we're doing something slightly different. Uh, I've been back in grad school, so that's why episodes haven't been as usual as they have been in the past, Uh, but I have been working really hard and doing a lot of research, uh, and as part of my final project for a class last semester, I did a two-part podcast episode. Uh, concerning the topic of gay icons. So I thought I would post those here on the feed. Uh, And I hope you have a lot of fun. It was a lot of fun to make. It includes a lot of different interviews with different people, um, some research that I've done. So curl up with a cup of tea, sit somewhere cozy, and let's talk about our icons. Here we go. For you, Huns, we're going to spend the next hour or so dissecting what it is to be a gay icon. What function do icons serve within the gay community? Do we idolize people we care about and can relate to? Do we find power in the feeling of control over our icons? What even is a gay icon? These are all questions that I've been considering for the past few months. It seems like an easy enough question to answer, given that we constantly talk about celebrities like Judy Garland, Barbara Streisand, RuPaul, and Cher. But what is it about these people that we find a connection with? And has that connection been disturbed by social media, especially post-pandemic? Over the next hour or so, I'm going to take some time diving into research and interviews with selected experts to discover what relationship queer people have with their icons and what our connections to those celebrities says about our role in the world. In an article for the New Statesman, Johan Hari once said, In the shifting nature of gay icons, we can identify the shifting nature of homosexuality. 
That is, we look at Judy Garland and see a tragic figure to whom we seem to be able to relate. We see her struggles, we hear her love life, we mourn her death. Especially in the morning of her death, we found meaning. It was on the night of her funeral that the Stonewall riots occurred, cementing her into the framework of gay iconography and even, in turn, her daughter's cementing into the framework. We moved from this female tragic hero to a stronger archetype in the 70s. As the queer liberation movement raged, we found strength in icons like Freddie Mercury and the village people. Masculine stereotypes that allowed us as a community to shrug the cliched femininity of the 1960s quote-unquote gay eunuch figure. Then, with the 80s, we saw the AIDS crisis. We needed a way to focus our anger, so we uplifted the archetype of the bitch. Joan Collins and others like her paved the way for us to quip in shady tones and fight back against a growing tide of homophobia. But this is where previous scholarship seems to stop. We see some research that goes into the 90s, maybe even early 2000s with stars like Britney Spears and Beyonce, but nothing deep enough to sink our teeth into. So we begin here. 1983. Two alternative blondes hit the scene within months of each other. On one side of the neon court, we see Madonna, all black fishnets and platinum curled hair. In the opposite corner, we find Cindy Lauper, emblazoned with her neon streaks and tutus. Both women feature a flashy new sound, smoky vocals, punchy synth drums, and lyrics that push the envelope. In all respects, both of them were in the news speaking out about the AIDS crisis, voices for the gay community on TV and on stage. So how are they different? In the plainest of terms, Cindy stepped away from regular album drops in the early 2000s to pursue feet-on-the-ground charity work benefiting the queer community, while Madonna continues to release albums and tours showing images of AIDS victims behind her as she performs on stage. Not to say that Cindy isn't considered a gay icon anymore, but there lies that word. Anymore. Why is Cindy thought of in the past, while Madonna continues to be at the forefront of our minds, even though Cindy puts in the work? Removing the context, why do we consider people our icons regardless of their actual impact on our community? Is it because there is a relatability factor? Or is it because they are infallible ideals that we can look to as examples of how we should exist? To explore this idea, I turned to a colleague of mine. Um, hi, I am Gina Tonic. I am a drag performer in New York City, and I'm obsessed with pop culture and queer history. I posed this question of why we idolize the celebrities that seem to be named most often among gay men, especially. I, I think it's sort of two different things. Because I think like, a great example of that is like Beyonce. Actually, this is a great, Beyonce is a great example because I think she has both. So for instance, Beyonce, when she first, did her solo career, she had her persona Sasha Fierce. And the idea was that 
Beyonce, for whatever reason, being one of the most gifted performers of our time, was had stage fright. And so she created Sasha Fierce to like over, overcome her stage fright. And so in a way, I think her specifically, like her story, I think is very relatable to people. You know, the story of like the stage fright and having to kind of create this new persona is very relatable to people. So I think there's certain, I think in some cases it's it's separate. Or maybe it's not though, because when you think about like, you know, Lady Gaga and like, I think the story in her music that a lot of us gravitate towards is this sort of feeling of being othered and different, but you can be accepted for being othered and different. Um, and I think her stage presence too, like it just, it just shows this like unbridled confidence of like being who you are and loving who you are. And I think both of those are very relatable for people. There is that idea of unbridled confidence that rings true from Hari's article. Perhaps there is a need in our community right now to have people to look up to who hold to this ideal of unflappability. But then why not turn to the male celebrities in our society like we did in the 70s? I wonder, this is just a theory, I do wonder if it's a little bit jealousy in a way we look up to these female pop stars because we know we can never be them but then you know does someone like Troy Sivan seem kind of intimidating to you know a lot of gay men who you know he's this cute young skinny talented force to be reckoned with is it a bit of like maybe an intimidation or a fear I don't know now this led me down a rabbit hole <laughs> one that I'm going to drag you down along with me for a moment pardon the pun Troy Sivan has received a lot of attention recently given his latest releases of music and music videos. But in 2018, Troy did an interview with Attitude Magazine where he specifically asked to not be thought of as a gay icon. Citing that he couldn't ever understand the struggle of queer people who aren't cisgendered and white, Troy said, That's why I politely reject the term gay icon. I would never want to put that on myself. In that same article, he is later asked to list people who he would consider to be gay icons. The list sounds familiar. Cher, Madonna, Miley, Robin, Lady Gaga. So is there something to this aspect of jealousy and commercialization? Are today's gay men unwilling to see other gay men as successful because they would rather see themselves in that position? Looking at Troy's newest music video where he is in drag looking exceptionally passing, perhaps he understands this unwillingness to see other queer men succeed, even if it is subconsciously. But to pull us back from the rabbit hole, where does that leave us with this odd hierarchy we find within the gay icon trading card pack, as it were. Are some people more important than others? Initially, I think I'd want to answer that question to like, no, like everyone's equal. But when you do think about it, there is some level of hierarchy. And I have two theories about it. One is, I think it's very obvious, like the A-list pop stars to me are on sort of one level. You know, they're so sort of like, definitely like, we, we, we refer to them, you know, the queen of pop, you know, queen of this, queen of that. And then I suppose it's only fair to say the hierarchy from there 
would go in terms of levels of fame. So like an indie pop star, you know, someone like Rina Sawayama or Chapel Rowan, even to a degree, and I love her, you know I love her, Carly Rae Jepsen is sort of like, they're like princesses or maybe like ladies in waiting of, you know, gay icon. Cause like, they're just not quite the A-list appeal of like a Madonna or a Beyonce or a Britney. I also do think in a weird way, there's also kind of a hierarchy of chronology. For instance, right now, because we're in the 21st century, I think a lot of like people, people tend to think of like Britney, Gaga, Beyonce, Taylor Swift. I think people tend to think of the current pop stars as being the main uh, top of the hierarchy. Whereas someone like, you know, nowadays, at least for people in our age group, someone like Cher or Liza, or Bette Midler, you know, who was a huge gay icon in the 80s and 90s. And now they're they're kind of thought of as maybe being kind of a second rung because they're a little older, you know, and then you have someone like Marlena Dietrich, who like I worship, but like, is she really ever, you know, and she was huge way back when, but now do we even think twice about her? So I think in a way, like time kind of moves you rung down. And of course, someone like Judy Garland is like pure legend status, you know, maybe shares up there too. So I, I wonder if it relates to your level of fame and also your level of fame in that moment versus like 10 or 20 or 30 years ago. At this point, I needed to turn to someone who has studied past celebrities a bit more. My name is John Velaz. Um, I'm 20 and I study journalism and with a minor in fashion. And I've published three articles now. John and I had a long conversation about older icons and who could be considered icons. And the idea of relatability seemed to keep coming up, but not in the way that I expected. Right. And I feel like in terms of like that personal like relatability and people who went through queer experiences without being queer, you know, like Priscilla Presley, you know, being groomed and things like that. I don't think that on a wide scale that queer individuals or queer men specifically, um, just because that's my understanding. I mean, I don't, I don't want to speak on my, you know, lesbians or you know anybody else because you know I feel like that would go into like a different um, conversation that I am not well versed in. But you know, in terms of my own experience and things like that, I think that personal aspect also like they're not considered gay icons because in a way it's kind of scary to talk about that personal aspect of it I feel like we have queer icons like Cher or you know Mariah Carey or Dolly Parton where it's you know fine and good and it's an escape not an escape but also it's just like only seeing you know like the good side you know the fun side where it's the fun side of being gay but then also with those personal aspects. And I really think that as queer men, like actually started talking about having been groomed and it actually became like a bigger conversation. I feel like we would be able to see Priscilla Presley or Marilyn Monroe become more queer icons. So then there must be a moment when a celebrity can become too personalized, too close to us that keeps us from looking at them in the way we would look at a Britney Spears or a Beyonce. We lose the distance between us and them, and it's harder to see them up on a pedestal. So instead, we aim for celebrities who spark our imaginations. They embody 
an experience that many queers have like gone through. Undeniably, these people are themselves and have no shame about it. And I feel like that is definitely something that is admirable. And I feel like that is something that is not necessarily queer, but something that a queer person could look up to. Because I mean, undeniably, when we're all children, we have people that we look up to or, you know, that, that it forms, you know, how we think and, you know, what we want to do. And I feel like in that sense, you know, having someone like Cher or Dolly Parton, you know, these people who have always undeniably been themselves, you know, they dress the way they want to, they, you know, do their makeup the way they want to, and they do not care. And I feel like that is something that when you can't really go into like a heteronormative world, I feel like when you have these women or people who are just themselves, you know, I feel like that definitely is why you have queer icons. So herein lies the struggle. We had a time in our past where we idolized those who were extremely relatable and we almost reveled in the tragedy of their stories. But as we've moved forward in time, we lost this need to relate to our celebrities. The 80s were a time of excess and glamour, so perhaps this is what took away this initial need. The pages of variety shifted from the desires of our icons to what they were wearing at the last red carpet. So we've made it to the 80s again. This decade seems to come up a lot in queer discourse. Perhaps that's because of the disease by which we were being defined. Perhaps it's because of when queer liberation hit its stride. Perhaps it's because that was when we realized that we were marketable. The 1980s saw queer subcultures coming to the forefront. With that, we saw the rise of a new form of cinema, the slasher film. For the first time, we were able to not only see movies that featured strong feminine characters, but we saw gay men making them. This was a genre all of our own making. I knew that if I wanted to discuss queer marketability through the context of the horror genre, there was only one person I could turn to. My name is Kim Douthit. I am a performer, a film director, and I teach and speak about horror films. Kim has led me down the dark and grimy paths of horror and true crime and really shown me what it was about this genre that lent itself towards the idea of the other and how queer people could come together to find icons that were purely our own. You can get into the exact like, oh, this is the first slasher film, whatever. But but really, people look to Halloween as your your kind of quintessential slasher film. There had been films before that, but that was the like, ah, look, babysitters, we're going to kill them. And that was 1978. And then you had Friday the 13th, which was 1980. And what was happening during these times? You know, you had Ronald Reagan. You had the white flight to suburbia. You had the body culture and and the war on drugs and this whole idea of punishing teenagers. If you have sex, if you do drugs, if you are bad, you will be killed by something. You will die. And who's the person who's surviving? It's the good girl. It's the girl who is not having sex. It's the girl who is smart and good in school and who is kind to everybody and, and who says no when someone offers her a drink. So 
there were these weird morality tales happening in slasher films uh and and as the foundation of it so the the media was just flooded with these characters and and what's what's funny is um it was nightmare on elm street part two which i i don't know are you you're familiar i'm sure with nightmare on elm street have you ever seen the second one i actually have not seen any of the series i oh. i'm i'm wildly behind on my horror <laughs> knowledge <laughs> i need to work on it it's okay uh nightmare on elm street part two is a really interesting film because it's not a final girl you are you are following uh jesse and jesse is uh fighting with freddy krueger taking control of him but the whole thing the whole movie was structured to play into gay panic because he is he is struggling to to between you know like i i don't have control and there's this thing there's this monster taking over me there are sirens in the background right now i'm sorry i live near hospitals let me know do you want me to pause when the sirens happen okay no it's fine i'm not worried cool uh he's he's struggling to have control of himself and this is also again this is the mid 80s so you have the you have aids you have this panic of of what's going to happen and it's going to kill you and and it was originally intended to be again that morality tale but it has been reclaimed because it's it's hella campy the movie is ridiculous and it's been it's been kind of reclaimed as as the same way we've reclaimed the word queer as now one of ours. This is now our movie. You may have made it to, to try to make people be worried about that the gays are coming for you, but you know what? They did come and they're fabulous. So that's it, right? There's the answer we needed. We lost touch with our cisgender, straight white women that we held up in the spotlight as our idols and found a genre all our own to claim and reclaim and proclaim to the world who we were. We were self-sufficient. Horror is never popular. Even now as it's become more socially acceptable, like when I was a kid, the amount of times I was told, it's why I, I used to not really talk a lot outside of my family and friends about, and my like good friends about how much I liked horror because the response I used to get is you're such a smart girl. You're such a nice girl. Why do you watch things like that? Why would you want to watch these these horrible, filthy things? And I think even now, uh, where in general nerd culture, counterculture is, it has become trendy to, to an extent, to a point. It's accepted in a way it never was. Thank you, internet. Because you're finding your people. You're finding that there's a larger volume of you that we realize like it might be outsider but there's a lot of outsiders because a lot of people feel this way and when you can be more open about it it's also empowering and it's also freeing <laughs> but i find that i still have to make excuses and justify my love of the genre and why i think it's it's valuable and why i think there's art there. A lot of people discount it and think it's not art. And it is. So we created a genre all our own. We reclaimed titles and fears and people. We lifted our heads to build up our own genre of celebrity. 
and yet it's still thought of as other. It's still a forbidden topic. It's still a subculture. So where does that leave us? Because you and I grew up at such an interesting point because I think we really saw such a transformation of like what it means to be gay in like society. I think about like growing up gay in the early 2000s and it being very much like gay men were these kind of people who propped up women. You know, back in like the early 2000s, it was like, you know, women wanted like the attention and approval of gay men in a way. And so then it's interesting then this theory of these media sources like Sex and the City is such a great example. And it, and it is, is it is it men telling women how they should be? Now, this was an intriguing idea to me. Are gay men choosing our icons as a way to gain some sort of ephemeral control over a society that refuses to include us? A sort of reaction to being othered is that we become a force to be reckoned with, causing celebrities to want to cater directly to us in order to sell their music and movies. According to the 2006 Gay Press Report, gay advertising outpaced all other magazine advertising growth. From 1996 to 2006, Gay advertising spending more than tripled, increasing 205%. This is nearly three times the rate of other ads in consumer magazines, whose ad pages remain stable during the same period. Clearly, the gays are a profitable marketing quotient. In the next episode, we will explore the ideas of rainbow washing, the pink dollar, and the commodification of queer culture. Until next time, bye!